And so what Bitcoin has done is created a digitally native, effectively a digitally native doll that you can transact efficiently, cross-border, permissionlessly. You don't have to ask for permission. It's trustless. You don't have to rely on any individual entity. And there is true finite scarcity. Right? And so you start to see as we advance through history, as we've moved up this like evolution of money, we've been ticking off different properties and we've been trying to make something slightly more efficient in here but then it usually lacks in this and bitcoin is the first time we've started to have a more holistic view of money that starts to meet the needs of many if not all of these properties that we've struggled with this is the blue collar bitcoin podcast a show where average joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century we talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Belly up to the trough for our second episode in the Bitcoin Basics series. We are again joined by Daz and Seb from Looking Glass Education as we dive deeper into the bowels of monetary history. A solid understanding of what money is, why it exists, and how it has changed over the course of history is important to understand how and why it is changing now. The transformation underway now could be as prodigious as the printing press, the Magna Carta, or the founding documents of the United States. Fundamentally, we are changing the rules of money. Human nature has proven untrustworthy, therefore we must have a money that removes trust. As Satoshi Nakamoto said himself, quote, The root problem with conventional currency is all the trust that is required to make it work. The central bank must be trusted not to debase the currency, but the history of fiat currencies is full of breaches of that trust. Bitcoin is built on the ethos of don't trust, verify. When you create a 24-word seed phrase using a cold card Mark IV, you are creating a secret password that cannot be broken. CoinKite has introduced an added layer of entropy to know absolutely that your keys are random and secret. And the only thing you have to trust is nature itself. You can use dice rolls to add randomness to your heart's content with the cold card Mark IV. This way, even if you don't trust CoinKite, you can be absolutely certain that the seed words created are indeed random. Further, you can air gap your transactions so that the cold card never gets plugged into your filthy, porn-laden computer full of internet syphilis. Air gapping is effectively the practice of prophylactic key storage. We recommend use of prophylactics at BCB in key storage and in general. Use code BCB for 5% off the Mark IV. If you haven't bought your Bitcoin 2023 tickets yet, now is the time to do it before prices go up. We have code BCB23, which will get you 10% off ticket price. Dan and myself, Josh, will be there, and we will be looking to hang out with Bitcoiners who listen to our show. If you want to join us for a beer or a coffee, grab your tickets and get your ass to Miami. That's code BCB23 for 10% off. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Here we are again, Bitcoin Basics, episode two. I'm stressed, guys. We were saying this before we clicked record. This is the, the topic today is monetary history and the rise of Bitcoin. No clue how we're going to do this in one episode, but we'll give it the old college try. Uh, Daz, Seb, Josh, how are you guys? Good, good. 
Doing awesome. Boys. Yeah, it's nice to be back on. I was just saying to these guys that this has definitely been a highlight of my month, well, my highlight of last month. And so I'm pumped to talk to you guys again. <laughs> so if you had a shot you sent us, or it was on Twitter, of you skiing down some treacherous looking terrain. Tell us a little bit about that before we get started here. That looked like some really gnarly shit that you were uh, involved in. Uh, you know what? It, it's one of those things I think that in life, it's so good to have the balance of kind of the creative pursuits, the intellectual pursuits, and kind of the sport pursuits. And so, and the gnar. Oh, oh, yeah. And so yeah. whenever I'm not uh, digging into finance books and Bitcoin, I, I definitely try to ski. And uh, I think that was just before Christmas. We, I, I live in Whistler, BC, so in Canada. And uh, we have some phenomenal skiing for those of you that don't know Whistler. And so I'm a big ski tourer. I spend a lot of my time in the backcountry scoping out lines that are aesthetic. And so I like the big couloirs and the big shoots. That's beautiful. Aesthetic lines. We said we have a, a co-worker. Shout out to Andy, who is, I believe he flies out tomorrow going to Whistler with his girlfriend and some friends. Uh, scouting out the vicinity for uh, maybe the 2024 department ski trip. We do an annual ski trip. This guy, this year, it's uh, Big Sky Montana. Next year uh, could be Whistler, and I Foss has a place there too, right? He, you if, know what? I think he just sold it. But I actually just oh. fired. I, I fired him a message uh, like yesterday, asking him if he's got any plans to come to Whistler. Because yeah, if, if anyone is out here in their their Bitcoin, they got to reach out because it's. It's yeah. an awesome place. And it's like sports and talking about finance and Bitcoin is definitely the way to go. <laughs> Dan, can you imagine getting our, our crew out there from the firehouse into uh, Foss's little den? Kind of damage oh, yeah. we could Careful do. Careful what you wish for there, Seb, because <laughs> you may get 12 total degenerate, hungry, uh, rambunctious firefighters just desecrating your home uh, if, you, if you keep offering that. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, maybe, I, maybe we'll. I have one single bed, so you guys can all share it. <laughs> uh, don't think we won't do that. Don't think that's not an option. <laughs> Daz, what's up with you? Not much, boys. I'm in the uh, the Fiat uniform, the the Fiat slave uniform, as you can see. So it's early early days, six a.m. here, ready to go for work. But yeah, pumped to talk to you, boys. And um, Seb talks down. He's a bit of an extreme sportsman too. So it's not only you know he goes backward country, uh, out in the middle of nowhere, takes lines that probably have never even been run before, and it, and then. When the sun's shining, the snow bloody melts away. He's um, paragliding, like one of those crazy freaking Dude, he's nuts. He is nuts. nuts. He's completely nuts. If you guys look here, you're doing I'm, the same. I don't know, man. I'm much more tame. Paragliding sounds like a, it seems like it would be cool as hell, but I would probably just load my pants full of shit if I did something like that. <laughs> um. All right. So we're thinking same model as the first episode and those to come, which is. We have a topic, but we don't have an agenda. So we are just going to rotate man to man. Somebody throws out a topic or a comment. We riff on it. We move to the next person. Hopefully we can do some justice to the the intended topic. Uh, let's do, uh, who I, I forget who we started with last time. Maybe we started with Seb last time. Daz, you want to kick us off with a thought or an idea to get this topic rolling? Uh, sure. It was probably one of the sort of, founding thoughts and founding threads that I sort of went down on my sort of investment journey is discovering what money is. And I think that's one of the most fundamental pursuits um, somebody can somebody can do is to really tear the lid off and think about what it is. Um, you know, there's a really good video series actually by a guy named Mike Munro. Um, he's a gold bug. He gets Bitcoin 
right and then wrong he goes down a shitcoin route so just bear that in mind if you're going through that video tutorial but we'll we might throw that in the show notes too for people to reference because it's a phenomenal um look at basically how we got to where we are today um and there's an evolution of money so uh while we you know throughout history we've used different mediums of exchange uh, and there's a whole heap of properties of money which we'll dig into in this episode and the next episode around what makes a good sound money but it was really one of the fundamental learnings for for, for my investment journey is to really figure out what money is and I, I you know it's one of the key communicating tech um, tools that we've used through throughout humanity as a communications medium which we'll dig right into today but uh, it, it and that's a sort of profound thing to say when you, you think about money you don't think about it as a medium of communication but it really is how we communicate value to one another um, yeah. explicitly and implicitly yeah I think I think what is money is the origin of this dis- like understanding this discovery the the resource that comes to mind for me that is really good and very approachable I think we might have even mentioned it in episode one pish and breed love BTC 001 do a great job of answering some of those questions really quickly it's one of those things, money is one of those things that is is the water and we are the fish. We take completely for granted what we use to denominate, transfer, and store value. At least most people do. And Bitcoin is really something that can throw a totally different lens on for a person to start asking questions about why things are the way they are and gain a recognition for the fact that they have not always been this way. And I think that's what some of what we'll cover today is is the history of that question what is money because it's changed a lot it changes relatively frequently when you zoom out beyond a single human lifespan the current system we're in right now is shorter than a single human lifespan really the the fiat monetary system as we know it today you can trace back to say the nixon shock of the early 70s which we can get into but i think begging the question what is money how has it changed and how is it likely to change in the digital age prompts people to start asking questions that start pointing in, in directions that cue Bitcoin, in my opinion. When I think it's, it's also really important to note that when it comes to money, being able to describe, so like for those that are not necessarily familiar and have dived into that question of what is money, it really is, it's just a, it's a, the means of lubricating the act of trade because realistically it allows two parties to exchange without that kind of common need in what the other one offers because if i'm a shoemaker and you freaking have fish or whatever and i don't need any fish and you don't need shoes it becomes really hard for us to trade and so money is that act of kind of lubricating uh it's that intermediary that uh, allows us to trade more effectively and it's really important that we kind of i would say we start on the, the like the three properties of money which is a store of value, a medium of exchange, and a unit of account. Because throughout history, different periods have tried to prioritize different areas of this or different characteristics of money. Sometimes people try and prioritize the store of value. Sometimes they try to prioritize the medium of exchange, so being able to exchange back and forth. And then sometimes they're trying to prioritize the unit of account so that people can actually transact more easily with it and denominate things in it. And so I think that throughout history, it kind of ebbs and flows. Sometimes we move towards a more centralized form of money, whereby we're trying to uh, take advantage of it. And then sometimes people are standing up and saying, hey, no, we want to move towards a more decentralized form of money. Uh, And so I think that 
at this moment in time where we've got something like Bitcoin, we're trying to move towards a more decentralized distributed one, but we'll get into that. I don't know if anyone has anything to add on that. I do actually. So the, the question of what is money is an important one, but I think even a precursor to that is the question of why does money exist? And you touched mm -hmm. on this a little bit, Seb. It's basically, it's important to first understand the history of it, which is effectively the purpose of money is to, to allow the specialization of an economy. Uh, it was without a common unit of exchange, uh, everything is barter. And what barter looks like, like you enumerated there a second ago, is the lack of coincidence of wants. So if you have apples, they have oranges. You don't have a need for an oranges. They don't have a need for apples. You have no way to communicate value between each other. Uh, you have a lack of a common value measurement. And there's also indivisibility of certain types of goods. And certain goods might not last a period of time long enough to actually save, quote unquote, any amount of money. So, and then you also have the difficulty in deferring payments and difficulty, like I just said, in storing value. So the key is though, once you have a common money that you can allow people to specialize in, people can do very specific tasks and they can excel and support themselves using money to gain and acquire the goods and services that others produce. And so effectively this allows people in an economy to specialize and even countries, you know, on the global level specialize in certain things. And this allows what we have today, which is this massive abundance of a global economy mm. that allows all of us to specialize however we prefer to get whatever it is we want. And then, of course, hopefully the money is good enough for us to store our value. Oh, man. Uh, there is a propensity in some people's minds to just dismiss money, whether that's out of fear, whether that's out of confusion. At the end of the day, even though money is a, and, and Josh, you did a great job in our first chat talking about money is sort of a, a fictional abstraction, right? But just because it's a fictional abstraction doesn't mean it's not important. It might be one of the most important things that our species has. It's the glue of human innovation. It's the lubricant of exponentially growing innovation and cooperation. Like you said, you used the word abundance. We have abundance because of cooperation. And the, exactly. one of the base languages of cooperation is money. Another point I want to make on this front is that, especially in the fiat monetary system we have today, there's a little bit of a misnomer that money is the creation of the state. I'm going to go back to a Carl Menger quote. Money is not an invention of the state, right? It's an emergent phenomenon, right? As you alluded to, wherever trade exists... There's going to the most liquid asset that emerges to facilitate trade and specialization ends up being money. And next next month when we talk, we're going to talk about the, the characteristics and properties of money. But historically, when you trend the history of money, what is selected on the free market is the the tool and the language with the most utility for those that are trying to facilitate trade. Yeah. And as far as we're talking about the history of money, I'm going to mention the Nick Zabo piece, Shelling Out Again. It's just such a good piece from long before Bitcoin existed when people, maybe more of the Austrian school, talking about gold, talking about just the history of money that that subset of people has been just obsessed with over the long period of time. All these things were used, wampum shells, glass beads. But the problem with all of those things eventually was is that any good that is used as money that can be easily or technologically reproduced is going to inevitably be abused because people will take full advantage, just human nature and game theory playing out here and produce these glass beads in a massive quantity, thereby, thereby just stealing effectively from the people that use those glass beads as their means of uh, uh, trade. And that's what we would call seniorage. And that's happening today as well, as we'll get into with 
uh, our current monetary system and why it's dysfunctional. But effectively, seniorage is when you can produce a monetary good uh, at a much lower cost to you than the good is actually valued in the marketplace. And so you can effectively steal from people. No, I, th I think you're absolutely spot on there. And I, I think there's something that's really, really important to point out as well is, and I think I touched on it in the previous talk very, very briefly, but um, there's a guy that some people may know of called Adam Smith, and he's basically a Scottish uh, Scottish kind of economist who I believe it Love was around the, the 17th uh, century. And he kind of came out with the first theory of money, like how money came to be. And his idea was that it evolved from barter. So we've kind of, Josh touched on barter briefly, which is basically where we're swapping our specific skill set. So if Josh has apples and I have oranges, then if I needed oranges, I would swap for apples or sorry, I would swap for oranges and he would swap for apples and so on. But then we face a problem, which is when, if I don't have what, uh, if I don't have what Josh wants and Josh doesn't have what I want, it becomes really challenging. So then people started to seek out commodities. So a common commodity. And so exactly as Josh just mentioned in shelling out, which actually I had a chance to read since our last one, and it is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. But, um, Basically, through commodities, we have had things like shells, we've had glass beads, we have had salt, we've had many of these different commodities that have usually become uh, the core transactional instrument just because there is some form of scarcity in their local community. The problem yeah. is that many times settlers from other areas would come into these, er uh, into these foreign lands and they would realize why are they transacting this thing that is very abundant in my area? And all of a sudden it would become diluted, which would cause chaos or wreck havoc in these local communities. Uh, and then so from there, people started to specialize, well, what is scarce, not just in my local region, but is scarce elsewhere. And so that's how precious metals came about. And we started to see like gold and silver and copper and things like that. And then from there, uh, precious metals, people had a, an, an issue with the fact that they were incredibly heavy and cumbersome. And so trade, especially internationally started to become inhibited and so then they moved away from precious metals and towards metal backed paper which is whereby you have paper backed by a certain quantity of metal and then from there we moved to fiat now this is the idea that adam smith kind of came about or came up with back in the 17th 18th century but it's interesting because there's a book that Breedlove he actually i think he dismisses it and he says don't read it and i was like you know what if someone's telling you not to read something I'm definitely going to go read it. And so it's a book called uh, Debt and the First 5,000 Years. And yeah. it's a guy called uh, David Graeber, and he turns this on its head. And he basically turns that actually money happened in reverse, whereby the oldest documents or the oldest forms of like evidence of money actually come from like clay tablets, uh, clay tablets whereby instead of working with uh, currency, we actually had credit instruments. And so we would actually be printing, whether it was barley, whether it was uh, cows, animals, and so on, we'd be printing it on these clay tablets, which showed that someone owed something to someone else. And so even though now we have debt-based money, what's really interesting is actually the oldest forms of money were debt-based money. So we found ourselves kind of go full circle. Full circle. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I don't know if anyone has anything to add on that. Um, you mentioned Adam Smith, and you really made a light go off in my head because his book, Wealth of Nations, we'll put that in the show notes, is a phenomenal book to read if you have interest in this topic of just economics and how the understanding of it back in you know, the 1600s. A mental model that he goes through in that book, which I found really good, was, uh, was basically characterizing, like even back then, how complex it was to produce a pencil. So he went through this whole thought experiment of like, all of these decentralized parties are acquiring the different materials to create a pencil. 
There's the people chopping down trees for the wood. There's the people mining. I think back then it was lead, lead to actually make the you know sharp part of the pencil that you write with. There's the people acquiring the rubber in forests in Africa that are creating the the uh, eraser, and then the metal and all the other constituent parts that you don't really think about when you think of just how simple a pencil is. But the supply chain going back to where these things are acquired and getting all those pieces in the same place in the same factory put together to create a pencil is extremely complex. Um, and all of that is done spontaneously through market forces, through price signals, and all of that co corresponds completely without centralized control, happens spontaneously, and creates a pencil through a, you know, a factory, even back then in the 1600s. It's a pretty compelling argument for the free market. I have to say, I'm pretty pumped with, uh, I'm pumped with my petroleum-based uh, pen that is only just <laughs> oil products. Hey, whatever, man. We dinos versus uh, lead, but it still works, right? Hundred percent. Haven't come that far in technology, as far as that's concerned. Daz, yeah. what were you going to say? Yeah, something like the properties of money, which we're going to explore. Um, it's something that we're able to look back and then sort of think about what has happened in this evolution of money. And it's important, like even in our course that we've got on, on Looking Glass, is an evolution of money, but it's not necessarily a chronological order. It's not a way to think about it. We've just sort of laid it out in that way as sort of we frame it up like barter. And what were the problems with barter and why did it lead to someone, you know, is that coincidence or wants like we've spoken about already? So that was one of the major drivers for us to look at the system we were using to say, you know, it wasn't a conscious thought, but it's just as humanity evolves, we've thought that there needs to be something that we can park our value in, in the intermediary between me, you know, selling my apples for the oranges, you know, if I'm not, don't necessarily need oranges, but I need fish, but the guy who sells fish doesn't need apples, then there's a problem, right? So we were seeking a medium by which to park our value in, in the interim for that trade. Um, and it's through this evolution of money. Like I actually find it interesting. I, I couldn't find the quote. I was just trying to find it. Um, a, a few economists have pushed back and to question whether barter even really existed. And I can't remember who who it was, but it was something that sort of took me by surprise. And it's like, well, a lot of these monies and currencies that we've used throughout history have like coexisted simultaneously, even to this day. Like you know, on Facebook Marketplace, there's um, buy swap sell pages. So the swapping is inherently barter. So it's like, oh, I'm going to sell my boat. Oh, you've got a motorbike I want. Okay, swing me the boat plus 200 bucks cash. That's effectively barter where um, swapping our goods and services and, you know, a little bit of cash your way and all that still factors in. So I find it really interesting to, to think that, you know, a lot of people dismiss that barter even existed when it, you know, it's still running concurrently to our current systems um, today, as well as like, you know, gold, for example, people still you know, exchange value through gold. Like it's not that common, but it's it still happens, you know. So it's this, what what do I want now? What do you have? And how can we settle that that exchange by any means necessary that we have available to us? And most often than not, it's the most common good is cash. And that's just the, the way it's evolved and the way it sort of works today. And, and people just sort of take for granted the other options that are out there. Right, yeah. I think you touched on such a good point, Daz, which is the fact that when it comes to like barter is a very inefficient means of transaction, but we still have it today. And so like, why do, why do we still have it today? And, and it's because of many individuals, like especially if you're from small local communities, if you're facing currency collapse, or if you're like poverty stricken, many people are pushed into barter because especially like whether it is the Weimar hyperinflation in Germany after World War One, or whether it is 
uh, Argentina or Venezuela's hyperinflation that they're experiencing today, people are being pushed into these inefficient means of transaction because their currencies are not actually meeting their needs. And this is where the, the problem is when we have the evolution money and people step in and they say, you know what, this is the best money right now. We should be using this one. We have a propensity to act in our own interests. And so when governments are co-opting money, then it leads to inefficiencies that push people back to these primitive forms of transacting like barter. And it's just like, if we can have a much more efficient society, if we can have a monetary medium that actually works for all of us, or at least the majority, in an efficient way, and allows people to express themselves in the way that they want to. So I think as, we, as we're as we asking that question, what is money, Seb, and, and you mentioned this a few minutes ago, you were sort of talking about ledgers on clay tablets, essentially ancient ledgers. And that that is what money is. It, it is a ledger, an accounting of who owns what for exchanging value across space and time. That could be a definition of a ledger. Nancy has eight units. Jim has 14 units. Just think of a spreadsheet of accounting of who owns what. And, and all major monies through history, if you really distill them down, function as ledgers. Even if we talk about physical commodity money, metals, right? Let's take gold. That is a ledger that's governed by physics and chemistry, essentially. Though the, yeah. the scientific realities of planet Earth dictate how many units there are, how hard it is to extract those units. That is essentially a, an ancient commodity ledger. Then you get the printing press or writing, clay tablets, etc. It's a writ, written, written documentation, a ledger. As we move into the digital age and as we have over the, you know, as money's become digital over the last century, let's say, it begs the question, what is going to function as the most consistent, reliable, useful, scalable, freedom-inducing, fair, value-accruing ledger moving into the 21st century and beyond. I think it's important to understand the difference between those two types of ledgers you just enumerated, Dan. The, the ledger on, like, let's just say, uh, clay tablets, right? There has to be a person responsible, a trusted central party, to administer that who has complete control effectively of what you own. Whereas in the example of gold, because of the nature of it, assuming you're holding it and you're not leaving it at a central party, gold can enforce physical, that physical attribute of your, your notch on the ledger cannot be manipulated by somebody else because you have that gold. If we just ignore the fact that gold is somewhat inflationary, we just assume that gold is fixed, right? So the, the major, major difference here is that there is a centralized third party controlling that ledger. Uh, with gold, there is not, unless it's being stored at like a, a central vault. I think you make such a good point, Josh. And it is, there's actually an article by Gigi, and I, I'll, I'll have to grab the name so we can chuck it in the show notes. And he talks about how basically in the digital realm, a ledger is absolutely necessary. Whereas in the physical realm, we can have tokens. Oh, I know which one you're talking mm -hmm. about. Yeah. And he talks about how we can have tokens. Now, a token in effect is a ledger, as you're saying, Dan, but a token can be exchanged from one person to the other in the physical realm. Because once it leaves me, if I hand you, Josh, a gold coin, I cannot physically have the gold coin. You have the right. gold coin. And so you can't mm -hmm. duplicate something in the physical realm. Whereas in the digital realm, I could, if we have a token, I could copy that token and send it to Josh, claiming I've sent it to Josh. But now we have uh, a duplication of that token. So now we have, uh, we've, we've doubled the monetary supply immediately. And so this is kind of the whole premise behind uh, 
um, Bitcoin and the Byzantine generals problem, which is how do you sp uh, how do you stop? We'll get to that. Yeah, and how do you end up stopping the duplication of money or the multiplication of money or the the actual term? I've got a complete mind blown. Double on spend. It. Double spend. That's double the word. Spend. I was like, what is the word? Yeah, how do you stop the double spend problem? And this is where in a ledger centralized authorities have been able to stop the double spending problem because they monitor the ledger to ensure that if I pay by debit card or credit card, I'm not sending a token to Josh. All that's happening is my bank is debiting money from my account and crediting money to Josh's account. So you're just adjusting the ledger. And a ledger is necessary. It is absolutely vital for a digital means of transacting. But now the biggest question is, well, if a centralized authority is monitoring it, how do you move from a centralized authority to a decentralized authority when no one is monitoring it to make sure that money moves from A to B and it is not double spent. Just, just a couple of um, phrases or some terminology just to throw in there just to add to that meet and that scene which Seb is, um, so we're talking about final settlement. So the act of me giving you that token and you're a physical possession of that is known as a uh, final settlement and then the token itself is known as a bearer asset because it's got no other claim to it. So that, that physical nugget of gold that I hand over to Josh, he's taken final settlement of a bearer asset. Um, so they're, they're just some terminology that, you know, people will come across as they're studying this, that, that they might want to, some context are in. I think one thing that's really important to touch on is the fact that when it comes to money, and I recently did a presentation in Prague about this, which is whereby we have the productive capacity of the economy is kind of, you can think of it as land, labor, capital, and enterprise. So when it comes to an economy, you've got land, that is all our natural resources, that is our trees, that is kind of our oil, that is our, our precious metals. You then have labor. Labor is kind of our productive capacity. It's you or I and our ability to add value to society. Then you have enterprise. Enterprise is our ability to create new products. It is our ability to use our ingenuity to be able to innovate and uh, increase productivity. And then finally, you have the capital lever. And now the problem is that all of these levers, whether it is the land labor, the uh, the land labor, the land lever, the labor lever, uh, the enterprise lever, or the capital lever, the problem with these is that all of them take significant amounts of time to create change, except for one, and that is the capital lever. The capital lever, if you just kind of pull the lever, print money, or adjust the the interest mm. rate to stimulate the economy, you can create change very easily. And so over time governments have realized this. They've realized that if we want to stimulate the economy, if we want to create change, the quickest way to do that is to pull on the capital lever. Because we can't change demographics when it comes to labor. We can't just suddenly have a bunch more productive people. We can't also just say, you know what, tomorrow we're just going to go find a bunch more oil or a bunch more gold and increase the value of our economy. A additionally, we can't just say, we're just going to find a bunch more technology that's going to help improve our productivity. But we can print a bunch more money and then direct it where we see fit in the economy. And so over time, what's happened is our money has transitioned from decentralized forms where we've got things like precious metals, whereby we are transacting back and forth with precious metals, to see it, where now we're no longer backed by something of value. Instead, we've moved towards something that is backed by debt, which allows the government to just pull a lever, stimulate the economy in any means it feels necessary. And the problem is it creates short-term or like short-sightedness. It changes our time preference because all of a sudden, rather than looking to change our own behavior, we look to alleviate pain and alleviate our immediate stresses. And so I think this is really important is to kind of highlight that over time, we've kind of have these ebbs and flows. But one of the biggest kind of 
apps that we've had recently over the last couple hundred years is we've transitioned to a very centralized form of money in order to be able to uh, give power to these, 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 the state and uh, entities who control the monetary printers. So on this theme, we talked to Lynn Alden a couple weeks ago and in her December newsletter, which we've re referenced ad nauseum on this show because it's so good. She talks about trending essentially why we moved away from bearer forms of money into fiat. And she pushes back a little bit on immediately criminalizing the transition and saying, oh, everybody's just a fucking power grabbing, you know, inflation slinging slime bag. It's, it's, it's a little different than that. When you trend back, why we transitioned to, as you've put it, Seb, more centralized forms of money. Because ultimately the trend that, that the four of us are drawing so far in this episode is that if we were to maybe overly summarize monetary history, you could say that at least in the last few hundred years, we've moved towards more centralization and, and, and centralized manipulation of money, of the tools that we use for money. And he, here's what she highlights. She talks about this velocity of money versus the velocity of commerce. And I guess if I was trying to, to try to dumb it down, it's essentially that as communication moved to the speed of light, essentially in the 19th mm -hmm. century, right? You have all these communications where, where communication and therefore commerce are now happening at the speed of light over telegram, over telephone, over internet, right? But when this initially happened, you had bare forms of money or physical cash or even physical uh, ledgers moving at the speed of bones and flesh, but commerce and communication moving at the speed of light. And as economies of scale grew more global and quicker, as I just alluded to, this necessitated a monetary upgrade. Up until that point, gold had sort of emerged on the free market of money as the the standard, right? The standard of, of store of value, in many ways, medium of exchange. And as things started to move quicker and, and economies grew, there needed to be an abstraction of gold, right? To allow it to move at the speed of light and the move at the speed of communication. But abstracting it, right? Creating claims on it, centralized it, right? And then you trend the centralization of gold, claims issued against it, banks, central banks, central banks co-opted by nation states. And here we sit in the 2020s with the price and supply of money heavily governed by nation states fiat as we know it today but that the reason it transitioned this way is more of because more because of a technological shortcoming of monies that emerged on the free market and now we have a new technology satoshi presented a solution that enables bearer money that can be self-custodied that can move at the speed of light that can work on the internet and that really gets to the root of the innovation here but I'm, I'm getting a little bit ahead of us no and you bring up such a good point dan which is the fact that i think that we sometimes it's easier to sometimes paint the government or paint the state or paint these monetary printers as these deceitful sinister individuals but i think that the reality is that what ends up happening is that it's a slow trend it's a it's a frog in boiling water they initially are doing things to try and actually increase efficiency or try to better individuals, but then you're altering the incentive structures. And as you alter the incentive structures, people are going to behave differently. 
And so it's not that these individuals are coming out and they're seeing central bank digital currencies 200 years ago, and they're just like, that's where we want to get to. And that's our goal here. And I think that the, the problem is, and you kind of slightly alluded to it, is that as we started to move away from, say, gold and precious metals, and we move towards uh, gold-backed, or uh, when we have a, say, a $100 bill that purchases $100 worth or backed by $100 worth of gold, the problem is, all of a sudden, these warehouses realized that no one was coming to start taking claim on their gold. And if people are not taking claim on their gold, well, they're just like, well, why don't we print a few extra notes here and make a little bit of extra money? So they started printing these notes, and this is when the fractionalized reserve system started coming out, whereby uh, instead of having gold backing every single uh, note in issuance, all of a sudden we had a fractionalized system where there was only a fractional amount of gold backing a much larger amount of money. And so the problem with a fractionalized system is all of a sudden you have a lot of fragility because if there is ever a bank run, if people ever want to go redeem that gold, there is not enough gold to go around. And so in when you look at like the 1930s depression, a lot of this came about uh, from this issue whereby we've got a fractionalized reserve system and governments, central banks and banks in general were spending beyond their means where they no longer had a backing to their currency. And so, or they had a limited backing to their currency. And so I think that one of the challenges was trying to increase efficiency uh, is that people take advantage of these increases in efficiency. Uh, and so when you've got paper money, if people are going to print it. So yeah. how do you stop people printing money? We well, exactly. need something like Bitcoin. You need something it's, that inhibits it. It's the, it's going back to the human nature aspect of this thing, you know? And I just want to throw in like far be it from me to take a stance disagreeing with Lynn Alden because she would just fucking body slam me in any real intellectual way. But in uh, the in way physical. that a lot of these, yeah, but in physical and intellectual, it, yeah, kick your when, ass. When Britain yeah. came off the gold standard, it was in 19, I think it was 1914. The uh, central bank was basically uh, selling war bonds for World War One. People weren't buying them because they didn't believe that they actually had the gold. So they came off the gold standard in order to kind of lubricate that whole situation. And in 1971, when the U.S. did it, it's because we were getting called out of not having the gold in the reserves, which we probably didn't have, or it was escaping the reserves so quickly that we wanted to lock it down. So in my view, this is a combination of pseudo nefarious activity along with just uh, taking the path of least resistance. Like yeah. I'm not saying it's necessarily totally evil, you know, like just people behind the scenes, like rubbing their hands together, being evil, but there's a combination of these two things in effect here. I would have to say. Daz, before I hand it to you, I wanted to say one thing. Nefarious is a relative term, though, because so back to the original point, what enabled them to manipulate the monetary system was the fact that the commodity good had been centralized heavily. Right. Like you can True. you can fuck with a gold standard once the gold is centralized. And that centralization was the result of a technological shortcoming of gold that had to be made up for by abstraction, which we hinted at a second ago. But when you put yourself back in these these situations, right, where exorbitant amounts of printing happen because of war conditions. Let's go to World War II. What do you do when Adolf Hitler is running roughshod over the entire world? Do you let him dominate or do you print money and start creating shit? And so you kind of have to put your, yourself back in these historical situations and say, yeah, it's a, it's a poor tool, I guess, but you can understand why policymakers did what they did and basically devalued currencies to try to win wars. But it gets yeah. back to a shortcoming of the monetary system to begin with that that's even doable, Possible. I guess. Exactly. Well, and I think that that's just where it's so important to, like, it's my belief, and I assume that it is your guys' belief, 
that we have to remove the capability for anyone to even alter the money because all of a sudden what that means, and I kind of briefly touched on it at the start, is that by removing that capacity, people now have to alter their behavior rather than altering the monetary system. Um, it's kind of like you'll see it in like school systems whereby one kid has, say, like a peanut allergy. So you just put a rule in place where, okay, no, no kids are allowed peanuts. And then all of a sudden you start to see allergies rise. So although you're trying to do something to alleviate short-term pain, you're actually making the long-term situation significantly worse. And I think that that's the same thing with money. When we try to step in to alleviate short-term pain, although it may be coming from a place of like goodwill, the challenge is that in the grand scheme of things, it ends up being more detrimental. It's all of the knock-on yeah. effects and people never think about the knock-on effects. Yeah, there's a really good example of that. In, uh, in India, I think they had a, a taipan issue or a, some sort of snake issue. And so what the government did or the authorities did was put uh, a price per head on snakes. So if you found a snake, you killed the snake, bring it in and we'll give you some money. So all that, in, it would just, uh, you know, to reiterate on incentive structures is all that happened then was people would actively go and farm these snakes. So they ended up with a way bigger problem by their central intervention than what they had originally because people were breeding these things in order to, to come and turn them in. So, you know, they that intervention just made it worse. And just to um, go back to the, the gold standard as well. So when the gold was getting, um, Rothbard's got a really good um, book. And again, we'll link this to the show notes as well about this evolution of money and sort of how that sort of come about um, with people, you know, storing their gold within these warehouses. These warehouses were the first sort of iterations of banks issuing paper receipts. And, you know, people, again, just will evolve to a frictionless offering. So it's way easier for me to just exchange that papery promissory note for the redeemability of that gold that I have in this warehouse, hand that over to you, Josh, for your horse and cart, rather than me going to the bank extracting the gold, handing it to you, only for you to return to the same warehouse and use the same system. So that um, evolution of uh, people's acceptability of being just being able to redeem, like I know this note is as good for the redeemability of gold as us physically going and ex extracting it and redepositing it. So, you know, we build up that trust system. And then, you know, with the fractionalization of that system whereby, you know, these warehouses realize that, you know, hey, wait a minute, nobody's coming back for this gold. We can, you know, be a bit cheeky and we can issue a few more promissory notes than we, what we physically have. But the incentive structure when they were finally caught was there was no precedent in law to our knowledge. So they didn't get charged for it because uh, it was a new new phenomenon. And second, there the people who were um, looking, you know, the decision makers of the world, the politicians and the government at the time noticed this big boom in economic activity. So if you have more currency notes floating around that's more you know my spending is your income and then your in, you know your income leads to more spending that leads to a, a very self-reinforcing economic boom so as a politician if you're looking at the prosperity that's been built and and the benefits of this system that we've just discovered then you're not incentivized to change that or go back to you know what we had before once you've experienced the 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 economic activity that can um prosper from such a system so that that's where the incentive structure just reinforced that behavior um and then finally um as we've evolved you know we'll give give a free pass and i largely agree with what lynn said about the you know technological advancements we had to come up with a system that that matched that speed of light commerce and speed of light activity um and and 
you know, for a globalized world, gold just doesn't work without huge trust in in banks. And there's a really good example um, in in World War Two, the Bank of International Settlements were one of the, those centralized bodies that would control people's gold. Um, so you know, we had a pile of gold here, and this is for Germany. Pile of gold here, this is France's pile of gold here is Czechoslovakia, right? So um, Germany invades Czechoslovakia. Yeah, the, you know, they call up or telegram up the old Bank of International Settlements to say, hey, yo, we just invaded Czechoslovakia. You know that big pile of gold with their fucking name on it? That's now ours. And Bank of International Settlements go, okay. So totally there's just an erosion of trust there where that system can happen. Um, you know, largely you'd like to think there's a lot of regulatory bodies that are a lot of regulatory controls that, you know, encumber that in today's age. But again, it's just like putting trust in this in this party led us to this new evolution of of well maybe we don't need to settle in gold anymore maybe there's a currency note that we can transact and as you know the digital realm evolved now we can just have a digital version of these ledgers going back to clay tablets where we don't actually need to physically move anything we don't need to physically move cash we can just all trust in each other and and have this um you know digital ledger uh where we move move digital units around and obviously there's a heap of problems that come with that because now you don't have a single centralized ledger you have a whole heap of different ledgers and a whole heap of different people with ability just to basically add a digital zero to the balance sheets which is exactly what happens today with central banks um you know and and money printing today that that they're that they don't even print it anymore so we we use money printing uh very loosely um and you know in our heads we've just got this image of these printing presses where the you know just these dollar bills are just streaming out they don't even do that anymore all they do is just go and digitally alter add another zero to this digital ledger that they control nobody else needs needs to control and then when we tie that back again sorry this big long ramble but you tie that back again into incentives the people who are the ones um you know controlling and making these decisions they're so far removed from what it means to be a blue collar worker and getting your hands dirty where your currency units when they introduce currency units there's this um effect called the cantillion effect or cantillion effect depending on how you pronounce it whereby the closer you are to the money spigot of the printing the better off you become so as a as you know the the these large corporations and these large banks and the primary brokers and all this sort of thing they're very close to this money spigot which makes their access to capital super cheap super accessible and then they go and deploy that in and that leads to asset inflation so the incentive structure for them is like this system works fucking beautifully they're not going week to week worrying about how they're going to afford fucking bread and milk for their kids and pay for their health care and their education they're so far removed from having to work for wages week to week that they just don't see devastating effects that that monetary system has on the lower runs i mean they're aware of it they report on inflation they report on this cpi and they go oh it's a little bit hot guys you know what i mean but they're so fucking um you know uh they benefit so much from the the way that that system works that, that, that they just don't see it from day to day so that you know that incentive structure to change just does not exist rant over yeah we we also have so so daz we, we have a form of money, a monetary system that enables those that are in control to alleviate short-term pain. If we zoom out and think about this in terms of other behaviors in life, it's not a good recipe for a long-term robust healthy system. 
if you're given a button in life that's turn off pain, right? It's just that you just have a fucking button mm. in your finger that just turn off pain. I assure you, you will be a fat piece of shit. Okay. I promise you, if you turn off all the pain in your life, all the hardship, all the difficulty, all the hard work, you will become a fat piece of shit. We have given centralized monetary policymakers a turn off pain button and our economic system is a fat piece of shit. Damn, okay? We're not allowed to say fat piece of shit. It offends people. You're going <laughs> exactly. to get us canceled. I mean, going to so, get us canceled. So this is what this is what's happened though and this is where back to not demonizing policymakers is that they're elected on four-year time frames with an electorate that wants a certain thing done they're trying to alleviate short-term real pain things that are right in front of their face and they now have the tools to do that because money is centralized and as the price of money that being interest rates and the quantity of money is at the centralized behest of these policymakers around the world most predominantly in the United States, it gives them that turn off pain button, which is most often used and I argue most harmful when it rescues to the downside. So one thing we talk about in the show is like the Fed put the rescue to the downside is what leads to massive engorged debt levels and money levels over time, right? If we talk about 2008, right? A lot of banks that that credit cards with bank names on them in your wallet, folks, wouldn't exist if they hadn't stepped in in 2008. And that's a tough conundrum to be in. But they had the opportunity to rescue to the downside, alleviate pain, keep a lot of zombie banks and companies rolling. And when this happens over and over again, right, like three main things that have happened in my lifetime, long term capital management, the 2008 financial crisis and then covid huge, just papering over pain which puts us in this situation where there could end up being a situation, an end game of max pain, right? But it breeds this artificiality. The forest fire analogy is apt here. Seb, I'm reading the price of time. He does that better than almost anyone I've ever heard. The forest fire section. If you just, if you, if you put out every single fire, you never let the underbrush burn away. What you end up getting is huge massively destructive forest fires that fuck up the topsoil trees that would have been there had the fire burned at the scale it was supposed to and we're just we're not allowing systems to reset and it's creating an economy that i'll reiterate is a fat yeah. piece of shit it's one of those things that i'm building on both your points and damn we were we were exactly the same in, in thought process which is whereby i don't think people recognize that when Central banks, when governments step in with monetary and fiscal policy, that money doesn't just get printed out of thin air in a sense that that value is just added to society and everything's all hunky-dory. That value is taken from the current, current currency holders. And so the analogy that we kind of give in our, in our course on Looking Glass is the fact that like, if you have a pizza, and let's say it's got four slices and I own one of those slices, so I own one quarter of the pizza. If the government doubles the monetary supply, that is not equivalent to now having two pizzas. What right. ends up happening is my quarter a slice by doubling the monetary supply becomes one eighth of the slice. So I've just had 50% of my purchasing power taken. And so the question you've got to ask is, if the government is printing money, who is in the best place to use that money effectively? Is it the government who has just basically been given money for free and value for free that it's not had to earn? Or is it the currency holders that have had to work hard and had to save to earn this money? And so I think that although people agree with these like social agendas and putting money towards trying to fix this and fix that, the reality is that they don't have to be thoughtful in their process of spending 
because they never had to earn the money in the first place. And so that creates a yeah. massive distortion. And so one of the biggest things in the price of time, as you say, Dan, is he touches on ever lower interest rates are needed to sustain a rising stock of debt. A vicious cycle begins with more debt requiring lower rates and lower rates resulting in yet more debt. So low rates beget low rates. We end up in this cycle where we just accumulate debt and accumulate debt. And there's one more quote that I'll just kind of add, which is the fact he says, there has been an estimated 637 rate cuts globally since the failure of Bear Stearns in early 2008. Central banks have purchased more than $14 trillion worth of securities and more than $8 trillion worth of government bonds yielding less than zero. So this is the economy rim right now where we're supposedly doing things for the betterment of society, yet debt is yielding zero. People aren't even being rewarded to lend their money anymore. Yeah. And it's just accumulating, creating these huge brush fires that are just being put out and eventually the system will implode. Right on. A couple of things I think we want to, I just want to highlight before we move on to talking about Bitcoin here, it's a couple of terms we've mentioned and I want to make sure everyone understands them. Seniorage is basically the ability to print money without having uh, being able to print it at much lower than face value. So if you are you have seniorage, you can print a dollar, it only costs you five cents. You effectively profit 95 cents on every dollar you produce. And you, the government is the only one with the ability to do that. And then the Cantillon effect, which is what Daz mentioned, that is the ability for the first people to use the money that's printed to not be affected by the inflation that will eventually affect the lowest people on the totem pole, the blue collar workers who are the last recipients of that money and therefore pay the, t the inflation tax that it had caused. And again, we we've been over and over like, are, is this evil? Is this just stupidity? Is this just human nature whatever? But human nature inherently takes the path of least resistance like anything in nature. So whether or not you want to call them evil or just human, if you had a, bu a button that you could press and you could get a billion dollars in your bank account, I would bet very highly that you're going to press it. And so whether we're evil, we probably are. Let's be honest. We're all probably evil. Um, I'd press that button and I'd have a billion dollars. And um, that's just what they're doing. So just keep in mind that whether you call them evil or stupid, you'd probably do the same exact thing because you want some free money too. When I, I'll add one quick thing for uh, building on top of what you'd mentioned, Dan, about kind of a lot of these credit card companies and stuff in our pocket. And the reality is that Although we're subsidizing these companies and we're preventing them from collapse, there's a really interesting talk between Nassim Taleb and David Cameron, the, the ex-Prime Minister of the UK. And basically Taleb says that in 1982, 1991 and 2008, the banking system lost more than it has made in its entirety in each of those years. And so it's just like we're propping up <laughs> a system that has shown that it cannot make money and is not productive to society. Like, that's mind-blowing. Yeah. That there's another... Crazy. um. This is another thought I'm, I'm sort of developing as we're talking here is that everyone's kind of familiar with the conservation of energy theory. So energy can't be created or destroyed. It just ships transfers. and just, um, it, yeah, just transfers and, and phase shifts, right? So um, I liken that a lot to value as well. So value, realistically, um, the, the whole value within the world has already been discovered. It can't be created or destroyed, right? So it's just a, if we introduce more currency units, though, it's got to be extracted out of that out of that value that that is is created similar to like Seb's piece right we can, we're not inventing any more so pe the value is the pizza we're not inventing right. any more pizza we're just basically cutting that into if you own one portion of that pizza now if there's eight pieces you still only own one portion so you know that value is not getting created um, and it's just getting extracted out of everything that exists right now 
So if you introduce more currency units, that's why we see asset inflation and price inflation of real goods because we've got now got a lot more units chasing the same amount of value, the same amount of goods and services. So you know that's only a finite supply. Even though we get creative and we you know create new services and so forth, realistically, um, value is value. And if we just have more currency units chasing those same amount of goods and services that are available right now, then you know of course that's going to lead to price inflation. And like just looking at you know, the U.S. debt alone is thirty-one and a half trillion dollars now. Um, that's two hundred forty-six thousand dollars per U.S. taxpayer um, debt equivalent. That's a god awful amount of money that is never going to get paid back from tax receipts. Tax revenue at the moment is four and a half trillion. So you know we're going to be chasing that tail a long way. And the way that you know if if the governments were to come out and say you know what guys we're raising your tax rates. I don't know what your tax rates are in the U.S. but Australia it's about thirty seven cents in the dollar if you earn a decent wage. If they come out tomorrow and they said, right, are we going to hike that to 50, there would be riots in the streets tomorrow. But what you can do is use financial repression. That term probably needs some, um, some, some terminology. You can inflate away that debt. So basically financial repression is where you hold interest rates below the rate of inflation. So the interest rates, the, the money that you've got to, um, yes, the cost of capital, the money that you have to spend in order to borrow. If you hold that below the rate of inflation, all the prices of goods and services rise over time. So, you know, if we've got $31.5 trillion, that sounds like a lot of money when a loaf of bread's five bucks. But what about when a loaf of bread's 100? You know what I mean? Everything's relative with with pricing. So yep. all of a sudden, if we can hold interest rates below that rate of, imp- um, of uh, inflation, then we'll inflate away that debt over time. But what that really... The, the really insidious thing that happens to blue-collar workers is our wages don't match that rate of inflation. You know, it's usually a good lag and, you know, we've normally got to have a few good years worth of pain before we're, you know, able to unionize and, you know, uh, you know, start to demand higher wages to match up how much we've already been eroded. But it's the erosion of your purchasing power in that short interim amount of time that really does does the effects and like people are starting to really wake up to this now um you know when inflation was two three percent reach five percent not as noticeable now we're talking you know in the higher realms of single digit into double digit inflation depending where you are in the world you're already well into double digit inflation yeah it's starting to hurt it's starting people starting to notice they can't fill their trolley you know their grocery carts up with as many goods as they were once able they're starting to you know they can't afford to fill their fucking um, cars to get to work so it's really starting to hit home now and people are starting to start to seek answers and start to look at and this is what you know i'm was so stoked to start this series is people are looking for this education and you know and it's, and it's guys like us who i mean look i'm in my uniform right now i'm going to the fiat slave mines straight after this talk <laughs> this morning because i work from day to day and like man we we, we don't we're a young family we've got two kids and we're noticing it man and it's and it's and i know why you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to find the reasons and when you know why, you can start to prepare yourself and you can start to look at what are my options? What's my optionality here? I know if I keep my any money I'm able to save, I'm in a lucky position. I get a good wage. I can hustle. I can earn more than my expenditure. I am able to put a bit of money away for investments. But if you park it in a bank and you know that that is you're under financial repression and you're not earning enough interest to keep up with the rate of inflation, I know my purchasing power is going backwards. So, you know, we get pushed and pushed and pushed further out onto the risk curve 
in order just to simply survive, you know. And that's why I think we we alluded to this in the first um, episode is that that's what led us all to Bitcoin is, you know, we're tearing that lid off this monetary system. We work out what is money and we say, okay, well, what are the properties? And we'll dive into this next week. I'm really looking forward to our next conversation of what are the properties that make up a good money, you know. And that's pretty much what led my, I think I could speak for all of us here, what led us all to Bitcoin was like, well, this is the fucking sound money for the future. This is the technology we've all been looking for. And all those points we've alluded to with the evolution of money is we got to this point where it's like, okay, we need something that's a digital bear asset, final settlement, no trusted intermediary. You know, it's a medium of exchange. Over a long enough time, it's a store of value. Um, eventually, it'll become a unit of account. It's kind of like the final ticket needs to tick off to be a really, you know, um, when we start denominating our goods and services in Bitcoin, that's when we know we've made it. Um, and that's what led us, you know, to where we all are. Yeah. So as we transition this talk into a little bit about Bitcoin, I want to bring up and talk about what exactly Satoshi put into the first block that was mined, the Genesis block. Uh, this is the quote. The Times London, uh, so this was on the 3rd of January, 20, uh, yeah, 2009, Chancellor on brink of second bailouts in the Times of London. So it, from its inception, this was to be a counterbalance to the current financial system. I mean, that's the heavily implied information that's in the first block. And if you read um, the book of Satoshi, we'll put that in the show notes. If you read a lot of what Satoshi wrote, a lot of it, he was obviously a polymath, computer science, you know, game theory. He understood economics um, and just a general polymath. If he was an individual or she was an individual, an absolute genius. If it was a group of people, wouldn't be surprising either. But a couple of things that uh, separate Bitcoin from this current financial system is that there are and will never be more than 21 million units. Uh, and so that removes this human ability for seniorage. There's no way for somebody to game the system. It's a hard-coded issuance schedule with no pre-mine, meaning that he gave himself no advantage. Uh, he did acquire a lot of Bitcoins from mining, but that's because he was the only miner for the first six to eight months at least. Pseudonymous interaction with the network and no rules or no rulers, only rules to follow in the in the protocol. So some very important things to remember about Bitcoin in direct comparison to the legacy financial system. Also, final settlement can be done in 10 minutes on uh, base layer Bitcoin versus probably about 30 days or so in the the base uh, financial system that we have today. I so yeah, as we transition into Bitcoin, Josh, you you, you nailed the rulers thing. That Bitcoin is a monetary ledger with very clear, predictable, transparent, censorship resistant, immutable rules without any rulers. And if you trace Satoshi, reading the book of Satoshi, the origins of Bitcoin, the Genesis block, as you hinted of, we've spent an hour exploring the dysfunction that's arisen from the fiat monetary system. It's obvious Satoshi noted that dysfunction and sought to create a digital alternative for the 21st century and beyond that allows for a ledger that gives human beings the ability to cooperate without the shortcomings of somebody manipulating it left and right and pressing that alleviate pain button that's caused so much fragility and so much concern. Go ahead, Sam. One of the quotes which you kind of alluded to 
I know you guys have probably heard of this. There's a guy called Ross Stevens, and Ross Stevens is kind of this, the CEO of uh, is Stony Ridge or Stone Ridge Capital Management. And in one of his CEO letters in uh, 2001 or uh, sorry, uh, 2021, he says that Bitcoin is a system built on rules instead of rulers. And I think that that is so powerful because what we've basically been talking about this whole talk so far, and we've alluded to it many, many times, which is the fact that at the moment we have a system that incentivizes short-termism, where basically we're just trying to alleviate short-term pain. If we can remove that, all of a sudden we start to have to act in the best interest of the po- the government has to act in the best interest of the populace. People start having to think long-term. And so I think that I want to bring it up just because it is recent. Uh, and that is the fact that there was a reason well, that is that there was a recent uh, Joe Rogan podcast with Peter Zeehan. And people have probably seen this because I think got a couple yeah. of million views. And one of the things he says, and you touched on it, Josh, which is Bitcoin has 21 million uh, hard cap supply. There will only ever be 21 million. Now, Peter Zeehan pushes back and he says, well, this could never function as a monetary asset because you need monetary expansion to stimulate trade. Now, at first, that makes sense because you're just like, well, if you have money that's declining in purchasing power, it incentivizes you to spend. So therefore, you're going to start stimulating trade globally. And that makes sense, except for the fact I would argue, and I'm sure you guys would, uh, I'm sure you guys would agree, which is uh, that when it comes to trade and when it comes to our current functioning system, we have a system that relies on debt and needs consumption to survive, because because of the amount of debt that we have, if these corporations don't continue to turn a profit, don't continue to make more and more money, then they're not going to be able to facilitate their debt service payments, and they're going to collapse. And so we need to continually push consumption. If we have a system whereby our purchasing power, or Bitcoin, is fixed at 21 million, and over time, as our productive capacity grows, so as people, as we, where the population increases or technology advances, allowing us to get more for less, what will happen is our purchasing power will slowly increase over time. Now, if our purchasing power is increasing over time, some would say, well, that's not incentivizing people to spend. But what I would argue is that what that does is create thoughtful spending. We are always going to spend. We have to purchase foods. We have to purchase goods. We have to put a roof over our head. We have to purchase shoes. We're always having to spend. But having increasing purchasing power means we're going to be a lot more thoughtful in our spending. So we're not just going to consume worthless consumption, unnecessary consumption, which is creating huge, unnecessary environmental destruction. And I think that that's something that's really important to note is that I believe that it is not that we need a system that needs an expansionary monetary supply. We just need to realign our incentives so that we have a system that incentivizes thoughtful spending, a system that incentivizes value creation instead of, I'm just going to spend this dollar because one day to the next it's right. worth less. No, that's uh, that's right in line with like the Austrian perspective of capital accumulation. Um, and the idea there is basically that when you're saving money, you're then you're never gonna, you're not going to de- deploy it on just nonsense and bullshit and frivolous things. You're going to take it and you're going to do your research and you're going to deploy it on good companies doing good things positively for the world. And therefore, capital accumulation is infinitely better than wasteful spending, which is not only bad for, you know, environment the environment in general, but it's bad for humanity and the economy because you're just effectively wasting that money. So, having the population have this longer-term perspective being able to redistribute um, that money into more useful pursuits in a co- proper capital allocation is kind of the holy grail for how an economy should theoretically work, at least from the Austrian perspective. 
just tying into that uh, that that book that we've all just been recently reading, The Price of Time by Edward Chancellor, is is basically interest rates are the inter- in the price of time. So by manipulating the interest rate, you're effectively manipulating our inherent biological makeup um, of how we choose to spend our time and energy. So you know by them manipulating the the price of time, which are interest rates, they are effectively you know, distorting our reality and our ability to navigate what is fair value for our time and services. So when we go and we swap our blood, sweat and tears for wages, um, by them distorting the money supply and distorting interest rates, it's distorting our ability to navigate what is fair value. What should I be spending my money on? What, you know, so you feel your trolley full of shit food, um, you know, because you think you're getting more out of your trolley you know it's just distorting everything in life it just touches on so many different points of how we go about um you know living our lives and increases our propensity to um increase consumption so you know if i can't save if that five dollars does nothing for me if all i've got left at the end of the week is five dollars i'm more than likely going to go and purchase something that gives me instant gratification like a beer you know, rather than put it in the bank. Whereas, like, if that accre- um, increases in purchasing power over time, I'm going to hustle, man. I'm going to try and make that $5, $6. I'm going to make try and make that $6, $10 and change my lifestyle and change my consumption habits to be able to stack the goods that's going to serve me um, over the long term, if that makes sense. I wanted to say this. I think there's two phases of Bitcoin hitting for people. The first phase, which we we won't have time to really dig deep in today, I think we'll get to it more in the next episode and the one after that, but how how momentous of a discovery Bitcoin was. That's the first thing people need to grasp. And then the second thing is once they get that, there's a difficulty in recognizing that it's next to impossible to reproduce, right? So the first one is it clicking that Bitcoin's a big deal. The second thing is that Bitcoin's the big deal, not this other stuff trying to copy it. The, the, the point I wanted to make, though, about Bitcoin being the discovery of digital scarcity and the opportunity for the separation of money and state, this discovery, as I like to call it, is momentous. And it's not like it just came out of left field as we think about the rise of Bitcoin. Like many technologies that have had huge impacts on human cooperation, I think printing press, internal combustion engine, the internet. It was an amalgamation of numerous ideas and inventions that had been worked on for decades by many computer scientists and engineers, right? And it it utilized prior inventions like proof of work, one-way hash functions, public-private key cryptography, but then it added these extra ingredients like blockchain difficulty adjustment and created this novel thing that we're so enamored with. But it didn't come on accident. It's not like some shadowy supercoder just came out of left field and just dropped this thing. It's something that had been worked on for a long time, and it put the pieces together in just the right configuration to be momentous. I think um, on that note, it's really important to just just kind of describe what it is that's different about Bitcoin versus like DigiCash or a couple of the other um, instantiations of an attempt at digital money before Bitcoin started or before Bitcoin actually happened. And I, in my mind, there's three things that differentiate Bitcoin from any of its precursors. And they are the it's the combination of these three things, by the way, because individually these had been solved except for the Byzantine generals problem, uh, the double spend problem, because digital information is so easily copied 
uh, digital money would have an inflation problem if people could just simply push copy paste and they could reproduce it. So what there has to be is a ledger, a ledger that is non-reproducible and is disseminated among a lot of different actors so that these different actors could verify themselves using their own node exactly if or if not this Bitcoin is legitimate. So that double spend problem was solved by Bitcoin's ability to basically destroy the coin when you send it. So your Bitcoin is effectively destroyed. That UTXO is destroyed. It's reinstantiated in the other person's wallet. And that solves the double spend problem. I was just going to quickly say as well, like I think that it's it's one of those things where like the Byzantine generals problem and the double spend problem are one of these things that really has made a big difference in money. So much so that I don't think people really, until you start digging into it, you don't realize how big of a like revelation this thing is. And like if we go back to the evolution of money, and although this isn't necessarily in chronological order, uh, I'm just going to quickly run through them, which is the fact that we have like barter. Barter is obviously exchange of goods and services between one another. We then have commodities. Commodities is the exchange of some intermediary that we deemed valuable. Then we have precious metals. Well, okay, we move away from commodities. We move to something that has some form of scarcity. And then we move to metal-backed paper because precious metals, unfortunately, were too cumbersome. And then we move to fiat because all of a sudden, people wanted more control over the metal-backed paper. And each of these instances, whether it's barter, commodities, precious metals, metal-backed paper, or fiat, each of these have a downfall. When we came to barter, the problem is we are not able to uh, efficiently transact with one another, let alone transact digitally. When it comes to commodities, all of a sudden we don't have scarcity. When it comes to precious metals, they're heavy and they're cumbersome. When it comes to metal-backed paper, uh, the, the, the challenge is that anyone has the capacity to print more than there is, and fiat is obviously just an expansion on that. And so yeah. what Bitcoin has done is created a digitally native, effectively a digitally native gold that you can transact efficiently, cross-border, permissionlessly. You don't have to ask for permission. It's trustless. You don't have to rely on any individual entity. And there is true finite scarcity. Right? And so you start to see as we advance through history, as we've moved up this like evolution of money, we've been ticking off different properties and we've been trying to make something slightly more efficient in here, but then it usually lacks in this. And Bitcoin is the first time we've started to have a more holistic view of money mm. that starts to meet the needs of many, if not all of these properties that we've struggled with over, over the last couple of thousand years. Beautifully said. It puts the it puts the best characteristics of many prior versions of this tool together. And that's why some Bitcoiners are so catastrophically bullish that in, <laughs> in the foreseeable few, I mean, there's people that would think for centuries indefinite, this may be the answer. That's a little bit extreme for something that's only 14 years old. But when you, when you think about something that's open source and programmable, like the internet itself, that can change and scale and adapt while maintaining base consensus rules while keeping the ruler 12 inches, right? right? When you say that, change, though, the important part of that as well is that it can change, but only at the margins. The exactly. main protocol itself is unchangeable, which is extremely important. The, the ruler of money has been broken, right? We're trying to build a house in the 21st century with a measurement tool that changes, gets smaller, gets bigger, in large part gets bigger, but it's a moving target, right? Bitcoin places a fixed length on the ruler, 12 inches or three feet or one meter or whatever. And it says, we're gonna work off of this measurement. You can get creative with what color the ruler is, what material it's made out of, blah, blah, blah. But we're gonna keep this measurement. And that 
in my opinion, is what's going to create, A, the game theory necessary for this thing to bootstrap itself to be a big deal. Translation, it's going to go up massively in price, okay, over time. But secondly, it gives the pureness of signal for human beings to be able to cooperate better than they are currently because of the constancy of the metric that's being used to exchange value across time and space. So Perfect. monetary metals, like everybody, um, you know, if you get in this what is money route and you start looking at all these properties of money, you inevitably land on gold. And the gold bugs have had it largely right. But, you know, where you've got to peel back another layer is why did gold fail? Um, and, we, you know, we've spoken about this many times already today. It's about, um, you know, the advancements in technology and the communications mediums and, and, and speed of commerce sped up. And that was fundamentally what was wrong with gold was it didn't keep up to that. You know, it was, it was heavy. It was cumbersome. So we ended up, you know, with these third parties and we ended up with more paper derivatives of gold, like put fiat currency aside, middleback paper aside, even in today's market, it's heavily manipulated by futures contracts. There is, you know, people don't want to store it at home. You know, I don't blame them. I hate storing, you know, gold at home. I don't store gold at home for that reason is because I don't physically want it in my house. So you have to put trust in some other system. And then as soon as you park that somewhere else, now you only have a claim to gold. You you, you, know, you might own a certificate that says this is redeemable for gold in this bullion storage warehouse and whatnot, but you can't verify that. You can't go and audit it yourself. You can't go and look at it yourself, and, you know, or it's, it's very hard to do so. So Bitcoin come along with a lot of those solutions to, okay, well, how do I know that I own the Bitcoin that I lay claim to? And we use math and digital and cryptography and very advanced mathematics to prove that you know that you own what you lay claim to. All you have to do is you know run your own node. And we're going to dig right into that. That exactly what that fucking means because that's you know you say say to somebody who's not in the space like oh you just run my own node. It's like cool man. What what the hell does that even mean? But um you know as you, as you lift all of the problems that gold faced, Bitcoin has a solution for that, and that's why it was a logical step for me to look at gold. And go wow gold this is a hard money metal this is what we need to go back to but what are all the failings of gold bitcoin fixes and we're going to tear the lid off right into that and it goes right even down to um the protocol specific things which uh, you know i'll just touch on now but i won't go into depth with the difficulty adjustment um it's just such a clever way of introducing new units or controlling the units of bitcoin up to this fixed cap supply of 21 million um whereas you know if, as the price of gold appreciated, miners were incentivized to go and ramp up their production and dig more of it out of the ground. What you're effectively doing is flooding the market with new issuance of gold. So it's a self-cannibalizing effect whereby you're incentivized to ramp up your production, extract the gold out of the ground at a faster rate, but you flood the market with excess supply and market dynamics, market equilibrium. If you increase extra supply and demand remains constant, price will go down so it's a self-cannibalizing effect on the on the gold price whereas bitcoin fixed this with this thing called the difficulty adjustment which we'll dig right into the details um i'm sure later on in this series um about how they go about that because it's, it's quite long-winded and complicated but they basically fixed that self-cannibalizing nature so that new issuance of bitcoin is predictable and we're not going to have any surprises as the right. price rises it's controlled and the most important thing about that is that it doesn't matter how many people are are digging you know quote unquote for that bitcoin there will be no more than the amount that should there should be it'll readjust so that every 10 minutes you get 
6.25 Bitcoins until the next halving. Mm -hmm. We've used the word node some in this episode, and the, in the intention of this discussion isn't to explain how Bitcoin works. In the future, we will do our best to fill in the gap of how it does what we claim it does. But to give the people a little bit of what, I, what they want in case someone's confused on that, money, as we've established, gets manipulated when the ledger is centralized, right? We talked about the failings of gold. As gold became centralized, and we talked earlier about the actual physical pieces being manifestations of the ledger, right? The ledger could be manipulated once those pieces were centralized. The same thing would be true for Bitcoin. If the Bitcoin protocol is one running on one centralized server at the Federal Reserve, it's no different than gold. It can be manipulated, which gets to the crux of what this discovery is, and that's spreading the ledger far and wide. The reason that this protocol, the game theory dictates that this protocol and network is probably going to maintain a fixed, immutable supply schedule. It's the discovery of total scarcity. The reason for that is that the ledger is spread incredibly thin. An analogy I've brought up numerous times on this show, but I think is worth bringing up again. I think Breedlove was the origins of it. Is think about trying to change the Bible, right? If I said change... John chapter five, good fucking luck. There's, there's millions of Bibles all over the world, many copies, right? They've been around for a long time. There's tons of sets of eyes on it. Essentially what running a Bitcoin node is, is it's your copy of the Bible. You get to verify the ledger, make sure the rules are being followed, make sure the UTXO set is as it should be. And because there's so many sets of eyes on it and everybody's incentivized to keep the ledger as is. It's the spreading thin, right, of the, the hardware running the software that enables this thing to remain the way it is. And that the, the right mixture of incentives for all these different disparate players to come together and run different copies of this ledger is what makes this thing extremely unlikely to change. I think there's also something that's really important to touch on, which is the fact that when it comes to gold, one of the fallbacks of gold, we've talked about it's like physical, tangible nature. Outside of the fact that we cannot digitally transact with gold in its physical form, the problem is because it's physical in nature, all of a sudden people, when they put it in a bank and they're able to redeem a gold promissory note, they don't ever go back to that bank to go and re re reclaim that gold. And so the challenge with that is that over time, obviously we've talked about it throughout this, is that people can start to abuse it. And we've seen this with things like FTX where FTX, uh, which have just recently happened, FTX yeah. has taken advantage of people that are not willing to withdraw their Bitcoin, not willing to withdraw their digital assets. And they've started to, whether it's dilute them or when in the, in the case of Bitcoin, they had, I think it was one point, what was it? $1.4 billion of Bitcoin assets backed by $18,000 of Bitcoin. <laughs> and but what's fascinating with Bitcoin is that all of a sudden, people can easily withdraw it so you can create a bank run much more efficiently than you otherwise would be able to with gold. With yeah. gold, it is it is most people because they don't want to hold the gold, just as Daz said, he doesn't want to hold the gold under his bed. He's not really going to go to the bank and withdraw his gold. So these systems can perpetuate for a lot longer in a dishonest way. Whereas with Bitcoin, once people have an ease, ease of access to Bitcoin, they can just kind of whether it's purchase a ledger, whether it's purchase a cold card or whatever any of these hardware wallets are, or even create a hot wallet on their mobile phone, they can easily take custody of it, which incentivizes 
all of these exchanges to actually act in the best interest of the customer because they realize that within a day, within 24 hours, people globally could withdraw their, their Bitcoin, something that was impossible yeah. with gold. And we've watched that go down in the last year <laughs> many times. I mean, we watched Celsius, we watched FTX, Three Arrows. I mean, there's a giant list of carcasses that have been left in the wake. Again, we want to reiterate, as we always do, don't keep your Bitcoin on any of these exchanges. You don't know how well capitalized they are. You don't know how much of these assets they actually have on hand and how much of it they have leveraged. They are just a black box and you could very well lose all your money. Learn how to self-custody your Bitcoin. Amen. Uh, we're rounding down here. I think we did a decent job trying to do this topic justice. There's so much more to explore and we can fill in a lot of the gaps. Our next discussion is going to be the characteristics of great money. And I'm sure that'll that'll overlap a little bit with this. Closing things we need to to throw in before we sign off that that need to be rounded out to do this topic justice. What do you have, gents? Mm, you know what I wanted to talk about just briefly? You guys know the history of the bear whale, just if we're talking about kind of historical context of money. This is kind of something from the history of Bitcoin, which is always a fun little anecdote. In 2014, October 5th, a gentleman decided to just dump 30,000 Bitcoin, which was about $330 per Bitcoin at the time because he lost faith in Bitcoin or whatever. He put 30,000 up on an exchange to sell at $300. And I think the, the liquidity of Bitcoin at that time was around $29 million a day. So this is a massive sell wall. Within the day, Plebes had bought this guy's 30,000 Bitcoin at $300 each, and they killed the giant bear whale of 2014. And uh, if anyone out there is listening and knows where we can actually get somebody to make, to like get a, a piece of art, Showing the bear whale. I would love to put that on my wall. That's just a cool story of how that all went down. Yeah. But uh, in the short history of Bitcoin, there's been a whole lot of interesting, fun little anecdotes that have happened in the bear whale. I'd have to say is my favorite story of how we slayed the... I wasn't there. I wish I would have helped slay the bear whale. Slay the bear whale. But I can't say I did. Dad, Seb, either you guys helped slay the bear whale? I, I definitely did not. Yeah. I wish I, wish I could have. <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely wish I could have. And you, you know what? There's one more thing that I'll add, which uh, it's popped up a few times on my feed this week, and you guys have probably seen it. Uh, some people may be saying, okay, yeah, but when it comes to bank runs, uh, at least when it comes to dollars, we've got FDID, uh, FDIC insurance. And there's a fact that came out this week, which is just freaking fascinating, which is the fact that when we're talking about a fractionalized system, we've got a fractionalized banking system, and then we have a fractionalized insurance system. And so FDIC insurance, for those that are not necessarily familiar, they back, I think it is up to, if you have 250,000 US dollars in your bank account, they will back that in the event of loss, in the event that the bank goes under. Well, in terms of their reserves for backing the $9 trillion of custom deposits, they have $125 billion, which is 1.3%. So those who <laughs> start to see a major bank run, it's not going to go very far. Wow, that's, that's a hilarious. great stat. I didn't know that. <laughs> that's hilarious. That's scary that they would just print the other 90-odd percent that they need. Like, yeah. It doesn't surprise me. I'm surprised that. they have anything in reserves for that, to be honest with you. I would have yeah. just assumed they were yeah. like, whatever, we're printing no matter what if this <laughs> happens. Fuck it. it. Yeah, it's it's like it's like uh, back to the incentive game for, for analogies. It's like telling your, you know, my wife and I have, have been talking about this. We have two little kids, but uh, it's our goal to not have them be fuck-ups in the future. And one of the uh, 
plans we have is regardless of what wealth we accumulate, you need to set up an incentive structure for them to make their own way. And if you just, if you just tell them, go do whatever you want. If you screw up, mommy and daddy, you're here to bail you out. That's no way to, to foster a good young adult that is going to be successful in the world, right? That, that, that gives them the turn off pain button. And, um, yeah, I mean, not that FDI insurance is a bad thing, but that and so many other things in our system is like raising a buttercup that's 27 years old should be living under their own roof, being productive, but says you go be you. And if you screw up, we're here to save you. And that's the problem with our monetary system. Oh, if, if I was to summarize like this episode in like a single quote, I heard it a few years back, which is uh, pay, uh, pay for the child for the road, not the road for the child. And I think that that is where like we have a system where, where we're constantly trying to just alternate the road, trying to manipulate the road for the child rather than just like, you know what? We need to alter our behavior. We need to change yeah. and realign our incentive structures so that we act in the best interest uh, of those around us and ourselves rather than just trying to, as you say, Dan, pressing the alleviate button all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Effectively, we've raised just generations of soft people who are very in tune and very easy to press that no pain button. And it's going to take some some learning at the very minimum to get people to understand that things aren't just always easy. There's an, You can't just always turn off the pain. We referenced World War II a couple of different times during this. And there was certainly no turn off the pain button for anyone during that time. No one. I mean, the entire world was involved in some shit up to their eyeballs. And we, the world hasn't seen any real shit. Thank God. I mean, it's a good thing. But at the same time, it's kind of made us all soft and wimpy as far as everything's concerned. We just, we kowtow to people who are, you know, triggered by every little thing. And we have fat Victoria's Secret models. It's ridiculous. I don't know what we're doing here. <laughs> what an abomination. Daz, what were you going to say? Maybe close us out here, brother. Now, look, great chat as always, guys. I think next week uh, or next month, rather, the next one that we do of these will tie a lot of what we spoke about today. I think the, they'll both dovetail really lovely because, uh, you know, we'll introduce some of those properties and have a bit of a riff on that and talk a bit more about that evolution now. One led to the other, which we've sort of alluded to today. But no, super pumped. I think what we're doing is really, really good, um, you know, especially for blue collars where... Uh, my heart lies, you know, it's for the people earning wages, man, and whatever I can do to try and lift them out of this fucked up system that we're trying to navigate and try and do the best for our families. We're the ones who create things, who build things, who fix things, who heal things, <laughs> you know. Uh, we're the ones getting our hands dirty and we're the ones that get fucked by their system and we need to educate and lift ourselves out. Absolutely. Daz, Seb, we'll see you next month. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks a lot, guys. Good work, boys. If you enjoyed this conversation and you're appreciating our content here at Blue Collar Bitcoin, you can genuinely help us extend our reach by taking a minute to leave us a review on Apple, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or liking and subscribing on your app of choice. Josh and myself, Dan, are also active on Twitter, at blue underscore collar BTC, where we regularly post about Bitcoin, economics, food, and all sorts of other bullshit. If you want to send us questions or comments, our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. Lastly, we take our partnerships on this show extremely seriously. We believe in these companies and their utility. Information, promo codes, and links to all our sponsors can be found down in the show notes. Take care, folks. Have a great week. 
And we look forward to you joining us again on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.